take your Bibles and go to Psalm 90 this morning. We wrapped up last week our Advent series, and you notice I didn't go back to John today. We will get back to John later on in 2024. Uh, next week, we're going to begin a smaller series I wanted to cover, um, like the Lord would have us cover uh, uh, this idea of, the, the series is called uh, Here is the Church, and it's a series that looks at what the church is, um, what a church does, and who is, makes up a church, and our, our role in a church, what is a Christian supposed to do when it comes to a local body of believers. So I would encourage you to be a part of that with us on Sunday mornings, so we'll begin that next week. And so today, I want to take a look uh, over the next few minutes at Psalm chapter 90 with this idea in mind, this theme of eternity. Psalm 90 is the oldest psalm written in the Bible in the book of Psalms because, as you might see there from the heading, um, this was a psalm that was written by Moses, probably around the time of, of Deuteronomy as the children of Israel were preparing to go in the promised land. But of course, you, you may know that David wrote many of the psalms, probably you know, of all the people who wrote the most of the Psalms, David was the one who wrote the most of them. There are other various authors, but this would be the oldest one written by Moses as he led God's people out of Egypt into the promised land. Psalm 90, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger, by your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Father, we ask now as we open the word of God that you would meet with us today, that your Holy Spirit would illumine our hearts, that you would use your word in a mighty and powerful way today, that you would convict us of sin, you would show us Jesus Christ. Lord, eternity It's not just an idea or a concept. It's a reality that we all must face. Therefore, Lord, would you help us to see it as such today? And if one is not sure of their eternity because they do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ, would you again today convict them of sin and show them 
the Savior. Draw them to yourself. As Christians, we gather here today, we must understand and realize, Lord, we, we have to always live in light of eternity. That's what you've called us to do. Yes, we have to continue on in this temporal world and, and function in it and, and do the things that you've called us to do here, but at the end of it all, we need to live for what matters most. We pray today you would show us the decisions we need to make in order that we would live in light of eternity and live to the honor and the glory of the kingdom of God. We pray that everything is said and done would give you the honor and the praise. In your name we ask it. Amen. Sometimes sermons need no more than one word to leave a powerful mark. And I realize that it's ironic that I would say that because my sermons have a lot more than one word. But this is the case in the, in, the, in the life of a man named Arthur Stace. Arthur Stace was born in Sydney, Australia in 1885. And he had a horrific home life as he grew up. His parents were alcoholics, and at an early age, Stace resorted to stealing just to survive in life. By the age of 12, he had become a ward of the state, and by age 15, Arthur Stace was an alcoholic himself. He had been sent to jail, and he continued on in his life of sordid behavior, all at the age of 15. In March 1916, Arthur Stace enlisted in the Australian Army to serve in World War I. In 1919, he was given a medical discharge, and then Arthur returned to his life of struggle, which only intensified with the onset of the Great Depression. However, on August 6, 1930, Arthur's life changed when he heard a sermon preached by Reverend R.B.S. Hammond. That night, Arthur Stace accepted Jesus Christ as his Savior, and his life was transformed. Though illiterate, Arthur became burdened with the notion of eternity. So much, in fact, that he began to seek to spread the gospel throughout Sydney in his own unique way. For 35 years, Arthur Stace would rise at 4 a.m. and go throughout the streets of Sydney and chalk one word on footpaths, doorsteps, railway entrances, and many other places for people to read as they went about their business. That word is eternity. It was one of the only words Arthur knew how to write. And he would go around in his handwriting, and there's a picture of him writing that word. And with this simple one-word sermon, Arthur challenged the hearts and minds of countless people. It made such an impact on people that he became known as Mr. Eternity. And at the, at the year 2000 celebration in Sydney, the word eternity was lit up on the Sydney Harbor Bridge in Arthur's handwriting. And it was later used that year even in the Olympic celebration. This illiterate man who grew up in poverty and extreme neglect gave himself to despair and vice, was miraculously saved and changed by God. And he impacted lives all over Sydney, Australia with this simple one-word sermon, eternity. Eternity isn't just a concept, it's a reality that we all must face in our lives, at the end of our lives. In our text today, in Psalm 90, we come face to face with the eternal God and his reality 
and this reality forces us to understand who we are and how we must respond to him. And what you see from Psalm 90 is this. Because God is the eternal sovereign, I am accountable to him for my own eternal destination and temporal actions. I've chosen this title for God today, that he is the eternal sovereign. Sovereign means he's the ruler over all things. He, he controls and orchestrates everything in his eternal plan. And he is eternal. He has, we'll see from the psalm here today, he has no beginning and he has no end. And because this is who God is, the creator, the one who has always been and always will be, you and I are accountable to him. You cannot get away from this fact that everyone is accountable to God. And that comes into play for our eternal destiny, where you will spend eternity. And it comes into play with how you live your life here on this earth today. God has called those who know him to live for him. He is still the eternal sovereign to whom we give account. So let's jump in today and see what does Moses share in this psalm about God. In verses 1 through 4, Moses introduces us to the God of eternity. We see God's eternal nature in verses 1 and 2. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. The whole of this psalm revolves around the eternal nature of God. God's eternal nature, then, is part of his right as sovereign ruler. This eternal nature plays into his control over all things. You know why God is the one who's in control of all things? It's because he's always been there to be in control of those things. He has no beginning. He has no end. The Israelites, to whom Moses is referring to in this psalm, because remember, Moses was leading God's chosen people out of Egypt and into the promised land. So when he talks about we, this is who he's talking about, right? He's talking about the Israelites and these people that that God had chosen for his own unique people and done so many things for, we see that throughout their history, God has has, has done wondrous things. God brought about the formation of that nation in a unique and special way through the life of Abraham. He then guided and directed the patriarchs of Israel working on their behalf, even though they were sinners themselves. He grew that nation and protected them. And then he freed them from slavery in Egypt, doing mighty wonders on their behalf to do so. And as Israel traveled through the wilderness, God continued to provide for and protect his people. He established his covenant with them at Sinai, revealing his laws to them. And he informed their worship of him. And then, as the people came to the precipice of the promised land, disaster struck. The people rebelled against God, and they refused to enter Canaan. The people failed the test of faith in God, and they paid the price. They were sentenced by God to wander in the wilderness for 40 years, while that generation that had rebelled against God died off. However, even in judgment, God continued to provide for his people and protect them throughout their journeys. And so now, once again... 
because Moses most likely penned this psalm sometime during the time of Deuteronomy, which contains reminders for the new generation preparing to take possession of the promised land, the people are once again now on the brink of Canaan, of the land God promised to give them. And here, Moses is reminding the people, listen, the Lord, God, has been your dwelling place for generations for his people. That is, when he talks about he's been their dwelling place, the the word carries the idea of of a home or a refuge, a place that is a protecting shelter wherever they were. If you look at the history of Israel up to this point, Israel's history has been very nomadic, to say the least. Abraham, if you read the account of his life, he moved around quite a bit. Jacob ran away from his home and returned later, a man who, who constantly changed and altered things in his life. Eventually, all of Israel's people moved to Egypt to escape the famine, and for the next 400 years, over 400 years, they would dwell there in Egypt. At first, they dwelt as honored guests. In the end, they were an enslaved people. And now, for the last 40 years, they have wandered through the wilderness, never at home anywhere. In fact, in the book of Numbers, chapter 33, there are 42 different places that are cited where Israel camped during their journey. You talk about having some frequent flyer miles, right? That was the people of Israel. Yet through all of this, their one hope and stay was God. That's what Moses says. In the end, that's all they needed. No matter where they stayed, their true home was always in the Lord. Wherever they went, they had him. Wherever they went, he went before them, leading them. And throughout all their generations, he had been their dwelling place. Why is this? This is because he is older than anything or anyone. He is above anything or anyone. He says here in verse 2, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. In, in the scripture, you'll see this. The mountains are used countless, you know, various times here to illustrate the everlasting nature of God. Mountains are seen as foundational to the world we live in. The ever, uh, they, are, they are established, right? They don't change over time as drastically as other things do. They illustrate what is unmovable and what is ancient. Yet mountains, which are so foundational to the world we live in, Moses says, are babes compared to the everlasting God. Before the mountains were brought forth, before God spoke them into existence, before the foundation of the earth was laid, from eternity past, God was there. He is everlasting and has no end. He has no beginning either. That's what Moses communicates here when he says, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. He is in control. He always has been and he always will be. By great contrast, though, as we look at the God of eternity, we then see at the same time in verses 3 and 4, man's temporal nature. He says in verse 3, you return man to dust and say, return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are, as but, a yes, are but as yesterday when it is past or as a watch in the night. So since God is etern- the eternal sovereign, he commands all things. This includes the lifespans of human beings. You and I are created in the image of God. We have an eternal soul 
that will live somewhere forever. However, we only get so much time in this world that God has created for us. God returns, he says here, you return man to dust from whence he came. That is an interesting phrase that Moses used here, and it, it really is only used in this way in the scripture in this verse. The word is used other places, but with a different meaning. Here, it, it carries this specific meaning. It, it means that, that the idea here is that, that there, someone is crushing something pulverizing it to dust. That's literally what Moses is communicating here about God, that this is what you do to man. God created Adam, the first man, from the dust of the ground and gave him life and an eternal soul. However, because of sin, death came upon all men. They would return to dust one day passing away. And in fact, because of sin, We read in the scripture, in Revelation, God will crush the sinful world and all that is broken in it one day. He will create a new heaven and a new earth, one that is untouched by sin. We'll be, and should the Lord delay his return, you and I, one day, will no longer walk on this earth. That is the way that life goes for all of us. We live here for the amount of time that we are given by God and we pass on. And when we pass on, we'll be remembered by a few. Most likely, most of us will die in relative obscurity. But God, the eternal sovereign, knows the day and time of our deaths. That's what the psalmist Moses communicates here. You you know these things. You're the one who's in control of these things. Now, this does not excuse us from making wise choices with our health and well-being, right? Sometimes we have this cavalier attitude that, well, if God knows, then I don't need to worry about any of this. Well, God has also called us to live in a wise manner, right? And he's given us these things to do that. But ultimately, at the end of the day, you have to realize it's not me who's in control of these things. It's God. He's the one who holds the reins. His oversight of our lives highlights, then, the differences between us. Because he is in control and he is eternal and sovereign, Moses says, a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past. You know, you and I, we cannot fathom the idea of living to a thousand years old. The oldest man that we know about, recorded in the scripture, lived to be 969 years old. His name is Methuselah. We are not told of anyone who lived longer than that. But but think about how our world has changed since that. Today, if you live to 100, it's a pretty big feat, right? And, and I'm convinced, by the way, the secret to living to 100 is to drink Dr. Pepper, okay? I don't know if you've ever read those articles, these people who, who drink that, and it's like, oh, you know, that's why I'm 100 years old. I'm like, no, that's what it is, okay? But, I mean, that's a, that's a uh, still, like, if somebody lives to be 100 or 105 sometimes, it's like, wow, right? The idea of living to 1,000 is we can't even... We can't wrap our minds around that. Like, that, that's just not even possible. But, the psalm, but Moses says here, to God, a thousand years is like a day that has already passed. It's just like yesterday. Like, oh, what'd you do yesterday, you know? And to God, that is a thousand years. He goes on to say that a thousand years are as a watch in the night. A watch in the night is a span that takes up four hours. To God, a thousand years, Moses says, is like a watch in the night. 
Why is this? This is because God and his eternity exists outside of time. Now, God relates to us within time, right? He, God created time for us. We read in the scripture that he created morning and evening, the first day, the second day, the third day, right, and so on. But God himself is not limited by time. Therefore, he is worthy of our trust. When we see God for who he is, that he is the eternal sovereign who has existed before anything in the, in the eternity past and will exist forever in the eternity future, and he exists outside of time and does everything he, that fits his perfect will and plan because he's the all-powerful God, this should awe us. He is far and away greater than we can ever imagine. We have a hard time even comprehending that God always has been and always will be But this awe then should not lead us to confusion. It it should lead us to trust. Because God is eternal and in control, I can trust him. Because God is eternal and in control, he is the only God. And throughout the history of mankind, we see his work. In verses 5 through 11, we see God's eternal work. In verses 5 and 6, Moses shows us the contrasting powers he says, you sweep them away. He's talking, about, he's talking about mankind. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. God is a mighty force to be reckoned with. Moses says he is like a flood, that he sweeps away mankind when their time has ended. And again, I would highlight to you that, that the, the catalyst for this, for the sweeping away of mankind, the catalyst is sent. This is what brings the judgment of God. That's what Moses is talking about. He's talking about judgment. It's in judgment of sin. And while God is seen as that flood that is over all things, we see that mankind is far less. Moses compares mankind to a dream. It is there. It seems so real and unending. But then it is gone, evaporating us back into reality. Moses says man is like grass. And in the morning, that grass may be renewed with the dew that comes. It may give nourishment and refreshment. But the harsh, arid climates, especially where Moses wrote here in the the, the area where Israel is and the surrounding wilderness, this brings about the inevitable fading and withering of the grass as the day goes on. Eventually, like that grass, all mankind fades. And while we must eventually leave this place, that is the way life works, God lives on. In fact, as we read there, it is he who forces us. He is the one who is sovereign over those things. He is the one who judges and, and, and sets the time. And we see now this, the force that God is ever in control of all events as eternal sovereign. In verses 7 through 11 Moses gives us a picture of the indomitable force that is God. He says, for we are brought to an end by your anger, by your wrath. We are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70 or even reasoned by strength 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are, gone. They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger? And your wrath according to the fear of you. God is not only the eternal sovereign 
he is also holy. And as we said, man's, man's sinfulness is the catalyst of his temporal nature. Sin is an offense to God's holiness and thus brings on his righteous judgment and holy wrath. And God's anger against sin brings about even the end of man. As you listen to what Moses says here in Psalm 90, I want you to remember the context of Moses' life. As he writes this, again, most likely in the time of Deuteronomy, if you're familiar with some of the things that, that Israel had seen and done in their journey from, the, from Egypt to the Promised Land, then you'll understand a little bit of Moses' context here. Because Israel had firsthand experience with God's judgment on sin. Pharaoh refused to obey God, and Egypt paid the price. God's people, time and again, refused to obey God, and they suffered God's judgment on numerous occasions. We actually we read that there are many people who paid for their life because of their sin against God. When you sin against the holy, eternal God, you do not get to control the consequences of that sin. That's what we like to tell ourselves, right? I can, I can keep this in a box. I know that, that if I do this, this is probably what will happen. When we sin against the holy, eternal God, we don't get to control what happens. We're not in control. The severity of God's judgment is always fitting for his eternal plans and purposes. And the sins and iniquities of mankind, Moses says, are exposed by God. He says here that you have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in the light of your presence. All sins that one thinks are hidden are made manifest by the light of God. One of the things that we have to remember is that we cannot hide from God. You cannot avoid God's judgment. One day, all will face the fact that God is sovereign and in eternal control of all things. And on that day, there will be none who can stand before him on his own. And while we live on this earth, our days pass away quickly. Moses compares them in verse 9, we bring our years to an end like a sigh. It's like a breath that is expended and you can't get it back. The days of man are, are limited. Moses, in his context, says that perhaps man lives to 70 or, or 80 years. Yet, what are those days like? That span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Moses says that, that the days we live on this earth are hard. They are lived scratching out an existence in a hostile world that fights back. Why? Because of the curse of sin. The days may seem long, but the years are short, flying by, and one day they are all gone. God is eternal and all-powerful, and we have no hope to stand before him in his righteous anger. No one can consider Moses says, who considers, or the word there is maybe better translated, understands, who understands the power of his righteous anger. No one understands the might of God's wrath and his power executed in just anger. God is an indomitable force acting in just judgment against the sins of man. And you know what? We can shake our fist at God all we want, but it doesn't matter in the end. 
he is in control. He executes just judgment, and no one will stop him. You say, wow, I mean, that is a really strong message. It's a perspective we all need. It's a perspective that everyone needs to see. It is a perspective that stops us short. It should stop us short. We are sinners. God is holy. We are temporal. God is eternal. We are gone after a short, hard life in a sinful world. But God never ends, and he is above all of that hardship. We react to what we experience. We deal with the consequences of sin. But God is in control of all those circumstances, and he decides the consequences mankind faces because of his sin. These are realities that should interrupt our lives and should make us think. There is nothing we can do to alter these facts. So what do we need to do? We need to live in light of them. God doesn't tell us these things through his word so that we can go, well, that's true for you, but not for me. He tells us to say, this is true whether you want to acknowledge it or not. And he doesn't tell you that so that you walk away and go, oh, man, we're just, we're done for, right? There's nothing that can be done. He tells us that to bring us to this reality. We need a relationship with God. We need the grace of God in our lives. But in order for you to see the grace of God, you have to understand where you are, right? You have a problem. We have a problem. We're sinners. We're temporal. We're fleeting. We're we're struggling in this life. And so, how do we live? We live in light of eternity. Right? You know, if I just folded up the book here and said, okay, let's go home, you'd probably go, oh, wow, thanks, right? So encouraging. Way to go for the new year. But Moses doesn't stop there. He keeps going in verse 12. He talks about how we're to live wisely. He says, so, or, or the idea here is connected, right? Because this is the life we live, because these are the realities, so... Teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. This is a verse that was etched on the wall of our teen room when I was growing up. It was still there when I was a youth pastor in Atlanta. And it's never left me. I think it was a great verse for teenagers, right? Because we all feel like we're going to live forever. But the context of this verse is so, it's so important. This is, why it was, this is why it's an important verse here. Because we are temporal, yet will one day live forever as determined by our eternal God, we need to live here in this life applying that perspective from God. Wisdom is applied knowledge. Okay, We know now who God is. We know his eternity. We know his power. We know our makeup. We know our sinfulness. So what do we do with it? Our lives here on this earth are short. We can't comprehend the power and majesty of God. Therefore, we need God to teach us then to number our days. We have this epidemic as human beings to always think we have more time, right? And I guarantee you that when you go back to school this week or you go back to work or whatever it may be, you know, there's going to be at least some of us in this room that you give in to that idea you have more time because the alarm goes off and you roll over and do what? You hit the snooze button, right? 
because I have more time. We look at the clock knowing we need to be somewhere at a certain time and we think, you know, I got a little more time. We engross ourselves in entertainment and on our phones and other places thinking we'll have more time for family and friends later on. We don't always act on life changes and meaningful decisions we need to make because there's always going to be time for that later. But the truth is, you and I don't know how much time we have left. We don't know when we will enter eternity. We do not know what opportunities on this side of eternity will be our last opportunities. So we need God's help to number our days and apply our hearts to wisdom. Each day and each opportunity could be our last. We're not in control of that. Now, please don't take this the other way. Okay? This is not a doom and gloom mentality or live in fear. This is not, I'm not holding a little sign with the end is near. Okay? What it is, though, is wise living informed by eternal perspective. Okay? If this is the view we take, that we're not in control and our days are numbered, that God's the one who's in control of that, it changes the way we approach our lives. How does it change it? Well, from an eternal perspective, it should inform us of our need of faith in Jesus Christ. If we do not have a relationship with God through Jesus, we will not enter the presence of God when we leave this earth. Instead, we will suffer, suffer separation from God and punishment for sin for all of eternity. And the work of Jesus calls for your faith in him alone. The work of Jesus provides for eternal state. You are called to trust in him. It's impossible to know how long you have here. Obviously, as we're prone to do, right, we say, well, you know, this person probably has, you know, you got more time than this person, but again, we don't know the reality of that. We have to number our days. We think sometimes we can postpone a decision regarding a relationship with God. Thinking, you know what, I'll make that decision later. It's not really rejection, we're just postponing it. That's what we think. I'm here to tell you, you postponing a decision about Jesus is rejecting Jesus. There's only one way or the other. If you are a Christian, in this temporal life, you are called to live in light of eternity as well. Living for the kingdom of God with the help of God. If you think that salvation in Jesus Christ is a free pass out of hell, so now I can do whatever I want, you don't understand what salvation in Jesus Christ means. You say, well, that's your opinion. That's what Paul said and what God said through Paul in his word. That if we think that it's just this free pass of grace, so grace will abound all the more, we don't understand what God's grace is. The salvation that God brings about in our hearts creates within us a desire for the things of God, to live in the kingdom of God. And so living in light of eternity for a Christian means longing for the Lord in our hearts and lives. And that's exactly what Moses shows here. Obviously, Moses wrote these things about the people of Israel before Jesus had come. But the realities that Moses writes about here are the realities that can be true for the hearts and lives of Christians today. Look at verses 13 through 17 and see the realities that Moses is talking about. 
He says, return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord of our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Moses now calls for the return of the Lord. He asks for his pity. The idea there is he's asking for his compassion on his servants. God's people, the Israelites, needed God's presence in their midst. God guided their journey from Egypt to the promised land. They worshipped him in the tabernacle. Moses pitched a tent outside the camp where he would meet with God. They wanted his presence in their lives. They needed him to go before them. They longed for his steadfast love to be poured out on their lives. They wished to be satisfied by the love of God shown in their lives. They sought joy in the presence of God. And Moses, you know, he talks here. I mean, Israel had learned that lesson the hard way. They had been afflicted for days. They had seen evil for years. The judgment of God on them for their sin of unbelief had been felt time and again. But the goal of such judgment, God told his people, the goal of his judgment of them was to turn their hearts back to him and draw them to himself. As one pastor put it, God does not allow his children to sin successfully. Therefore, Moses says, we long to be thankful, we long to be glad for the affliction that God had brought in their lives to draw them back. Because this meant they belonged to God, and they experienced this affliction as those whom he loves and cares for. And in our lives, if you're a Christian, living in light of eternity is the same sort of longing for the Lord that we need in our own hearts. An eternal perspective should turn our hearts to the eternal God whom we cannot live without. We need his work in our heart and lives. We need his grace and strength in our lives. We need his presence with us, his love and joy that we may be fulfilled in him. We need him to develop within us a desire for him and him alone. And so let us learn from the example of the Israelites that we need to stay close to the Lord, walking in the spirit that he has given to indwell believers. Israel sang this song in Psalm 90, looking for and longing for God's work to be shown to them. They had seen displays of God's glorious power in the past, and they wanted to see it again. They wanted God to work among them and for them. Do you seek God's work in your own life? Do you seek to see him do great and mighty things that he alone can do? If we know Christ, we know the eternal God, and he can and does do mighty things. And lastly today, we see in verse 17, the people seek then the favor of God. What they long for with his favor is for their work to be established, or another word to say there is confirmed by him. 
They want their actions to be approved by God. That is what brings about God's favor. And so too should we long for this. We should long for God's glorious favor to shine into our hearts and lives. And the surest way to experience the favor, the blessing of God in our lives is to obey God. That's what he's called us to do. The people longed for God's presence and work. They sought his blessing. They knew his law. He revealed it to them, calling for their obedience. And so the surest way that they could experience his favor was to obey him. Then their work would be established. And today, as Christians, we need to continue to obey God. Here is the glorious truth if you're a child of God through Jesus Christ. You have something the Israelites didn't have. You have the Holy Spirit of God living within you. I was just having a conversation with my wife about this this past couple weeks. Here are the Israelites, you know, they have the law, right? And you do the law, and you keep the law, and you follow the law, but there's no Holy Spirit in their hearts and lives. What does God promise in Jeremiah? That he would write the law of God on these people's hearts. Where does that come from? It comes from God indwelling us. Now, it doesn't mean you don't read the Bible. Like, oh, I have the Holy Spirit. I don't need the Bible. God uses the Word of God, right? That's what he, his primary method of instructing us. But he uses his Holy Spirit to illumine that to us, to, to help us to understand it, to grow us in him, and to help us to live for him. And he speaks to us through the Holy Spirit. Now, not audibly, right? But he uses his Word. And as a Christian... We have to submit ourselves to him, leaning on his power to live for the kingdom of God. Here's what it comes down to. You can live a life that matters for eternity through the power of the eternal God. You can live a life fulfilled in God, experience a vibrant relationship with him through Christ. Because God is the eternal sovereign, I am accountable to him for my own eternal destination and temporal actions. We cannot get away from the the concept, the reality, we should say, of eternity. We will live somewhere forever. If you die without a personal relationship with God through faith in Jesus, you will spend eternity separated from God in hell paying the price for your sin. We see in Scripture that God is holy. Therefore, he can have nothing to do with sin, with that which is wrong. And if you understand the reality of yourself, that you are a sinner, the holiness of God should bring you to this reality. God has nothing to do with sin. He has nothing to do with with me. God is is just and must judge sin. And there, again, if you understand the reality of who you are, that you are a sinner, you stand under just judgment of God. God is loving and gracious and has reached down to us. We just celebrated this at Christmas, the coming of Jesus, who came to die on Calvary, who gave himself for you. And he offers salvation in Jesus as a gift. Jesus lived a perfect life as God and man, died on the cross for our sins. He rose again to offer us eternal life in himself. And you can find a security of your eternity in Jesus Christ alone. 
And if you know Jesus as your Savior, he changes you from the inside out. You are a new creation, the Bible tells us. The old things have passed away. The new has come. You will live in eternity with him, yes. But you are also called to live for his eternal kingdom here on earth. Your life should be one that makes a difference for eternity, and that comes only through the work of God. Tomorrow, yes, we will enter a new year. And every time we pass into a new year, it causes us probably to reflect on the one that has passed and what we may want to do differently in the year ahead. But such reflections on a temporal thing should also point our hearts and minds to the matters of eternity. How did you live for the kingdom of God this past year? What is God calling you to do today? Eternity matters more than anything. And living for the kingdom of God is greater than anything this world has to offer you. You can live a life that matters for eternity through a relationship with Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. You can live for him today. Father, we thank you for the word of God and its power to change our lives. We thank you for what you have shown us today in your word. That you are the eternal, only, sovereign God. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to see you as you are, high and lifted up. That you are holy and just. You are righteous. And we stand before you and you judge us because of our sin. Because you are the only one who can. And Lord, help us to see that reality. And Lord, I pray for one who may hear these things and has never come to you and, and believed in you, that you would show them that reality today and work in their hearts to draw them to yourself. Lord, as Christians, help us to see that reality of, of who we are in and of ourselves and help us to see the glorious provision you have made in Jesus Christ. And may we never cease to be thankful for it. And may we then see and understand the calling you have placed on our lives as Christians to live for the kingdom of God. And help us today to listen to what you have said to us. Perhaps there is a sin that we have tolerated in our lives that you have convicted us of. Help us to submit that to you, to follow you, and to give that to you that we can be used more and more of you. Perhaps there is some other action we need to take that we have put off. Help us to be obedient in these things. Most of all, Lord, we ask that you would continue to do your, your work in our lives as we leave this place today. We ask that you would bring us back safely this evening to worship you together. In your name we pray.